The New Testament reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we've been looking at this letter from Peter. And if you know anything about Peter, you know that he was at one time a very um, prideful man. He, was, he had a quick temper. Um, he is famously caught in the scriptures denying the one he claims to love. But Peter had tasted of the forgiveness and the grace and the goodness of Jesus so that God uses this once vile man to preach at Pentecost where 3,000 come to know Jesus. And he uses this man to write this letter to these new Christians, um, as we've talked about many times, who are, who are scared and afraid and who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who are undergoing suffering and who are undergoing persecution. And he's reminding them of why they have hope in the midst of that, and he is showing them what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ in the midst of the world that may not know Christ. And so there's much in this letter that is incredibly helpful for us in any age where we live and in any culture where we live. And so this morning, before we go to it, 
Uh, Let me pause again and pray and ask that God would help us to understand. Father, your ways are are different than our ways, and your thoughts are, they're so far above our thoughts. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly in your word, that you speak to us by your spirit um, through your word, and we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding, that you would allow um, your spirit to speak um, even through a frail man like myself. We pray that we would be encouraged, that we would find our hope resting in Jesus, that we might, as Peter encourages us, that we might sanctify him in our hearts, that it would change the way that we relate to one another. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Some of you I met for the first time this morning. Some of you I've known for a really long time. And for those of you who've known me uh, for a while, one of the things that you might know about me or maybe you've noticed about me, maybe we've talked about, is that I tend to move in cycles. And what I mean by that is um, it's, it's embarrassing to admit, but I tend to move through cycles of being almost obsessively and extremely healthy to cycles where I'm almost, can I say it, obsessively unhealthy, and particularly in the way that I eat and the way that I exercise. And so I move in extremes. I don't recommend this to you. I'm just claiming that this is what I do. And so my wife, Rosie, knows when I'm moving into like a healthy cycle. I basically get tired of being unhealthy, and then I repent of that, and I wake up one morning, and instead of just going for the coffee and not eating any breakfast and running out the door, I start peeling carrots. And I get the kale out of the fridge, and I start dumping things, all all healthy things. I, I just want to do it all at once into the blender, and I start blending that stuff up until I make a concoction, an edible salad that looks, it's like the consistency of, I could say a lot of things. It looks like baby food. Let's go with that. There's not like a real definable color there, and it doesn't like look very good on the surface, and even when you smell it, it's not the most pleasant smell, and even sometimes going down, it doesn't always taste that good, but what I know is that there are good things in there for me. And I'm always reminded again, almost on that first day when I click back into my healthy cycle, I'm not in a healthy cycle right now. If somebody you're going to ask me that afterwards, I'm not. Uh, but maybe even preaching this, I'll be encouraged tomorrow to wake up and start differently. But even in, in tasting that and drinking it, and it doesn't always taste good, the effects are almost immediate. I already feel um, different. But it doesn't look good on the surface. And I think that when we come to some passages in Scripture, and maybe even particularly for some of you, a passage like this, that on the surface we might think, what, what is good here for me? This doesn't look palpable. It doesn't look appetizing. It doesn't look good on the surface. And I'll be honest, um, this week as I've, I've studied and I've wrestled with Peter's words, there are times in which... I felt very anxious about talking about this passage. And I'll tell you, the reason that I felt anxious is not necessarily for what it says. Because I really do believe that God knows better than we do. And I believe that his word is true. 
And I believe that all of it is, is for our correction and our, our reproof and our training in righteousness because he loves us. But what made me anxious is the ways that other people have used God's word. And some of you, um, maybe in this room, have been the recipients of someone else who's taken some of Scripture and has twisted it and used it in a way to subjugate you or maybe even possibly to abuse you. And there are women I know in this room who maybe have suffered at the hands of men who have taken Scripture and have used it in such a way and have twisted it in such a way to hurt you. And so I say that on the front end to not just to acknowledge it, but to also say there, there are things here that may be hard for you. Um, and I would love to talk to you more about those things. Um, but also to say anyone who does that with scripture, there is nothing more heinous and nothing more wicked. And if you're here this morning and you're in a relationship where somebody is using scripture in order to hurt you, please come talk to me. If somebody is using God's word, there's nothing that defames the name of Jesus more than somebody would take his word and use it against you to hurt you physically, emotionally, verbally, or sexually. Please, if, you, if you're uncomfortable talking to me, my wife was up here at the beginning, you can go and talk to her. Um, you can find another woman to talk to in the congregation. But let me say this on the outset. If you can read the section... And if you can read the entire letter of Peter and what you're walking away with is this sense of power that you have over another person, then what my prayer is for you this morning is the Holy Spirit would enter your heart and help you to repent of your narcissism. Because your love of self, your love of self has distorted your view and has taken God's word and has distorted it. Because nobody should be able to read any of the words that we just heard Helen read and walk away thinking, how can I use this for my own advantage and my own gain over somebody that I vowed to love? This section is, is rather, it's about this. It's about the power of putting, that you now have the power to put others and their needs before you because Jesus has done that for you. It's transformative power. It's about people who are not mad and people who are not angry about where God has chosen to put them in life because they have been so transformed by the fact that Jesus loves them and Jesus has changed their status. And Jesus calls them not only friends, but he calls them saints and he calls them co-heirs with him and that everything that is coming to Jesus is now coming to them and that has transformed them and it has set them free to love. That's what this letter is about. And so before we dig into this, I want to start um, in verse 8 through 17, and then we're going to circle back to his directives um, towards husband and wives. So, because in, in verses 8 through 17, and we can't cover everything that's there, there is a wealth of riches in those verses. But what he's doing in verses 8 through 17 is he's giving us a, a, a summation of this revolutionary, subversive calling that Christians now have within the context of their culture. That he is calling the Christian community in the midst of a world that may not understand them and may be hostile to them to follow in the footsteps of Jesus so that they might testify of his radical grace and his radical love in the midst of that world. 
How do they do that? They do that in, the, in this context from, from the middle of chapter 2 until the end of chapter 3. They, he talks all about relationships. They do that in the way that they now are transformed and how they relate to one another as the body of Christ. But they also do that in the way that they respond to people who wrong them and people who treat them unjustly, that they now don't return evil for evil. And they don't revile anymore against those who revile against them. This is radically subversive in the way that it takes on a system that has rejected God. And so I want you to listen again to these words in verses 8 and 9. He comes to this point where he's explained our status now in Christ and who we are now in Christ. And he's gone and given directives about what that looks like relationally um, between those who are servants and those who now are wives and husbands. And we'll circle back to that. And then he gets to finally addressing everybody. And he says this, finally... All of you, every one of you who have tasted of the grace of Jesus, who now belong to the household of God, who are now part of his family, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And friends, this is what he is saying. In these two verses, he's saying, this is what the church is supposed to look like. It is supposed to look like a group of people who have so deeply tasted of the grace of Jesus and are so humbled by it that they now have tender hearts, that they now have brotherly love. For one another, that they now have a unity of mind. And let me just ask you this. I don't want you to answer out loud, okay? Has that been your experience in the church? Is, is what Peter is talking about and what he describes, um, is that what you have experienced in Jesus' church? Because often, and the New Testament takes a lot of time to talk about this, often what we experience Um, is the opposite, and we experience backbiting, and we experience gossiping, and we experience people trying to hurt one another and lying to one another. And sometimes you may hear those verses, and you may think, you know what, I've experienced that more in other clubs that I've been a part of. I've experienced that more in basically a group of people who all rally around a, a similar team that we're all pulling for Croatia today, right? As Christians do. That's right. I'll see you in the back. Yes. Um, that maybe, you know, I've tasted of that when, you know, here, here's an example. When I was about 11, 10 or 11 years ago, I owned a car that I loved. It's, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, right? But I owned a car that I loved, and it was a car that I only paid $3,000 for. So it wasn't luxurious. It was a 1989 Toyota Land Cruiser, and I loved it. It had like 250,000 miles on it, but it ran like a champ. It was indestructible. It was beautiful. And that, what I realized when I bought that vehicle was there was a group of people who all centered their lives around those vehicles, um, they did things together on the weekends. They would have parties at one another's houses. They would, what they would call wrench together. Bring your truck over it and we'll wrench, which was a verb. 
Um, I learned this. All different walks of life, all different kinds of people brought together by a car. And, and so I thought this was kind of weird and kind of silly, but I also kind of loved it. And um, there was one day when I was driving. This is when I lived in Mississippi. I was driving up the Natchez Trace, and I was going to a funeral. And about halfway to this funeral, my, engine, my check engine light comes on, and my, and my oil pressure plummeted. And so, kids, if you're new drivers, if that ever happens, you pull over immediately. Don't keep driving. I have, a dri- I have somebody who's getting ready to start driving in my family. So I like to coach when I can. You drive over immediately. If you don't have oil pressure, you have to pull over. So I pull over, and I pop the hood, and there's oil everywhere. And I'm thinking, I can't fix this here. I can't even probably diagnose this here. And so I get on the phone, and I call one of my friends who also is a Land Cruiser owner. And I kid you not... Within 30 minutes, there were six men and multiple cars and a flatbed trailer. And they put my truck on it and they took it back to my house. And they looked at me and they said, go get a case of cheap beer. And so I did. And by the time I got back, they had already fixed it. And they patted me on the back and left. And I'm like, there is, how is there unity around something that is so temporal like that? Or you think of places. Um, It's kind of become a famous scene now, if you're a fan of Anthony Bourdain, um, when he visited Charleston. And Sean Brock, the chef, was taking him around to different restaurants, and late at night, after they'd had a little too much to drink, he recommended they go to the Waffle House, and Anthony Bourdain had never been to the Waffle House before. He'd eaten in places all over the world, but never the Waffle House. And so they go to the Waffle House, and he is blown away. Now, if you've never been to a Waffle House, Jim Gaffigan describes it best. It is like a gas station restroom that serves waffles. (laughs) It's what it looks like, right? And I love it. It's where real people go. And so they're eating there, and he's kind of overcome with, like, the different types of people are there, and just there just feels like there's this bond. And he says these words, It is marvelous indeed. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everyone, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, are welcomed. (laughs) And I think for many of us who maybe are in the church, if you heard those words, you thought, yes, that is what the church should be. The church should be a place that opens its arms and welcomes in that sort of way. And there is something incredibly powerful when we encounter a place and a people from various backgrounds and cultures who have unity of mind and who have sympathy and have brotherly love and have tender hearts and have humble minds, ones who don't repay evil with evil or reviling with reviling. And only the power of the Holy Spirit can create that for an eternity. Because land cruisers die. And Waffle Houses, even though they say they never shut down, eventually they do. But the church of Jesus will never end, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And so how do we be like this? How do we become this? And let me say before I say this. I, if I only get to taste of the two years that I have at this church and nothing else beyond it, I will say that I have tasted more of this and seen more of this in my Christian life than I've ever seen it anywhere else. And I don't say that to puff you up or to make you proud because what I have seen is the transformation 
of Jesus and his spirit creating a culture that has humble minds and has tender hearts and has sympathy and brotherly love. So I don't say these words to you, and Peter's not saying these words to them to reprimand them. He's saying this to encourage them to continue in what is already happening. And so how do we continue in that? And I would say this, and I'm going to say it until you get tired of hearing it, is that we go back and we remember our status. You see, what he is doing is subversive, that he's addressing people that are lower statuses, but he's just told them that they are a holy nation, that they are a royal priesthood, that they are a people for God's own possession, that they have been called out of darkness and into light. And here's the thing, when we actually wrap our minds and hearts around the fact that we have been shown grace by the very one, the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth, who we have offended the most, then it changes and it transforms us. And it should produce a people who have the most tender hearts and the most humble minds of anyone you have ever encountered in your life. It produces, in verses 13 and 14, he repeats this several times in this passage, it produces fearlessness. It produces um, a a character that, that basically has been set free from fear because what they have experienced is eternal love. In eternal love, it casts out fear. And so Peter says over and over again, what, what do you have left to fear if you've tasted of this grace? It's a people who are quick to tell others of the hope that is in them. That they're quick to say, what is different about you? And why is it that Um, the community, this thing, the church that you're involved in loves one another like this and is patient with one another and is kind to one another and is interested in people outside of the church and is interested in people maybe that other, the rest of the world's not interested in. Why are they like that? And he says, you're quick to give a defense of the hope that is within you. And you know what he says? He follows up and he says, and they do it with gentleness and respect. Oh, that the church would look more like that. That simply by their behavior and by their conduct, that the world takes notice and is intrigued and asks them, why is there hope in you? And the way that the church responded was with gentleness and respect. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. So what about if we go back to the beginning of this passage and we look then at the application that Peter makes, as we keep this in mind, he makes this application to marriage because this whole section is about relationships, right? And Jesus cares about every relationship. He cares about all relationships in the church. And he also sees it as one of the most vital aspects of how we encounter the world is how we relate to one another. And so naturally, one of the most fundamental relationships in the church and in culture is marriage, The bulk of the people then and the bulk of the people now um, tend to be married, and so he sees it necessary uh, to address that. And the reason he does that is because, here's the thing, if the gospel is not changing the way that you relate to the one that you took vows to love for the rest of your life, then how can it possibly change you when you sit down next to somebody in church who's radically different than you 
and you've never maybe even met before. And so he's saying it has to begin here, that, that it has to begin in one of the most fundamental relationships um, in the church. And so before I look at both of these, let me read something to you. And this is from a, a New Testament scholar named Karen Jones, and she wrote a commentary on First Peter. And reflecting on kind of on this whole section from the middle of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3, she says this. The reader who does not understand Peter's intent in his instruction to servants, wives, and husbands will not understand the message of 1 Peter. Within this passage, Peter grounds his ethical teaching on the Christian life rightly lived after the example of Christ's suffering. How short-sighted it is to use this passage as if it were a marriage manual simply addressing the relationship between husbands and wives. And how ironic it is that the words that first century servants and wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. When read within its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation with the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. Now that was a mouthful. But let me read that last, that last phrase one more time. These verses become a call to social transformation with the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plans. So what does he say? Let's start with wives. That's where he starts. Um, what does he say first off to wives? And first off, he tells them to be subject to their own husbands. And now listen, he's primarily, and this is why he starts, I believe, with wives, believes with wives, is because he's primarily addressing women who were married and who were also con- who converted to Christianity. And yet, many of them had husbands who had not done that. And so, he says this basically to those who do, they're married to someone who does not obey the word. And somebody who is um, worshiping, in this context, would have been worshiping other gods. And now, obviously, to be subject to their husbands was not a new thing to them. Because in the Greco-Roman culture... Um, they were called to be submissive to their husband to the point where they were supposed to take his religion when they were married. And they were also not allowed, and I've read much about this, they were not allowed even to have friends of their own. And so what Peter is saying to these wives who have converted to Christianity but remain married to somebody who is not, that the temptation might be to simply leave to get out from under him, um, to, to find maybe a Christian husband. And what he's doing is fairly radical, is that he is saying, no, I want you to stay, and I don't want you to fight against him, but I actually want you to win him over with your conduct. What does that mean? The conduct, he says, likewise at the beginning of this passage, is Jesus-like. He uses the words gentle and quiet spirit, and we might think that as sort of diminutive. We might think those is like, is that what a female is supposed to be like? No, those are characteristics of our Lord Jesus. I want you to be like Jesus in your marriage. And this is how you might win him over, because he is important. And you have professed love to him. And so this is how I want you to love him. You see, for a converted wife 
to take a different religion from her husband would have been seen as extremely rebellious. It would, it would have been seen as outright rebellion, really. And in even the social interactions that she might have as a result of following a different God than her husband follows would be a very dangerous thing. And Peter says, do not fight against him. Instead, honor him, be subject to him. Love him the way that Jesus has loved you. And so you go, well, what about these directives then about hair and gold and clothing? You know, I, I, you might have felt like subconscious. If I'm wearing gold jewelry this morning, am I breaking, you know, God's word? No. I want you to think about it um, in the context of this. Well, first of all, that's not necessarily a new directive from the Bible. If we go to the Old Testament, we see that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but those who fear the Lord will be praised. And so I think Peter is, is saying one of the temptations is going to be for you to use seduction in order to maybe distract him or to win him over so that you may go and do what you want to do. And he says, don't use that. Instead, use now the Holy Spirit and the Christ-likeness that you are now empowered to exhibit in order to win him over. Another reason he probably gives these directives, and this is uh, speculative on my part, but um, is that these women now might have been emboldened to leave the home to go and worship with a new community of believers. And that in itself would have been um, probably somewhat shameful to that husband to see his wife out walking in the street without him, and especially if she was adorned in such a way that might look like she was going to do something she shouldn't do. And so he's saying, what he's saying is think about him. Don't shame him. Even though you are now free, you're a free person. You are free in Christ, but use your freedom now to love him. And finally, she uses Sarah and her relationship to Abraham as an example of this. And what she's saying is that Sarah was Christ-like in the sense that she respected Abraham. And Abraham was a father of the faith. And Abraham is praised um, in the New Testament, and rightly so. But sometimes, if I could say this without disrespect, Abraham was sort of, um, he made some dumb decisions. And what Peter is saying is that God kind of subversively used the fact that Sarah at some points was trusting in God more than Abraham was to bring Abraham back to God. And he's saying, I want you to be like that. You see what Peter is doing is he's going to people who the rest of the, in in Greco-Roman literature, um, servants and wives and women in general were not addressed at all. And he is addressing them particularly because what he sees is that they are vital and they are important in God's economy and they are important in God's kingdom. And he is showing them that they have power to subversively point their society to Christ by following in Christ's footsteps and suffering alongside of them. He is not oppressing them. He is empowering them. Then what about husbands? He starts with the word likewise. Again, he started at at verse 1 with likewise, and likewise in the same manner was about the way that Jesus operated in the world. 
Jesus was under the authority of his father. Jesus submitted to his father. And in the same way, he says this to wives, and he says this now to husbands. Likewise, in the same manner, he is to honor her. He is to honor her. She would not be used to honor. Um, That was not a word that was normally applied um, to a wife. Why? Because she was the weaker vessel. That's a, that's a word you probably didn't want to hear applied to you, right? As a woman, a weaker vessel. What in the world does he mean by this? He means it quite literally that a woman um, at that time, this may not be as true today. Um, I, I think my wife is stronger in, than I am um, physically. Uh, and, uh, but at this time, she literally was... Um, physically weaker. That was just a fact. For the most part, by and large, she was physically weaker. And that was one of the reasons that she might have been put down and she might not have been honored. And so Peter says this, he tells husbands to honor them. Why? Because they are heirs of the very same grace that you are heirs to. Meaning what? meaning they are equals to you in every single way. Women who are physically weaker, who didn't, as a result, didn't hold, they held a lower status in society, were used to maybe being taken advantage of. Peter says, uh, husbands, honor your wife. Honor her. And so let me end with this. What about application to us today? And I'll start with marriage and maybe work my way back a little bit because Peter is working in a tough context here. And some of his application and some of his instruction I think is very specific to his conduct, his context. But generally speaking, what he's saying is not unique to the New Testament. In Ephesians, Paul, um, he tells husbands and wives to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he tells wives to respect their husbands. He tells husbands to love their wives. How? Like Christ loves the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that husbands have authority over their wives' body. And then he says, and wives have authority over their husband's body. Do you get it? Marriage is not about how much you get out of the other person. It's about how much you are now freed to give to that other person. This is, how, this is the picture that the Bible paints of marriage. It is an individual who is now so satisfied in Christ and their status in Christ who has been set free to think of the interest of the other over and above themselves. Peter, in the rest of the New Testament, never directs a husband to demand respect from his wife. Never. And husbands, if you find yourself using some of these passages in order to demand some sort of respect from your wife, you know why you're doing that? Because you are not listening to the call of Scripture to love and cherish and honor your wife like Christ loves the church. And your result, your, 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 it's resulting in manipulation. One of the most revolutionary things that husbands can do in this context in our culture is to vividly love 
their wives and honor them. To serve her, to cherish her, to love her like Jesus has loved you, to not cast blame or demand attention or affection, but to treat her as one who is equal in every way and to not do so, friends, defames the name of Jesus. What about more generally? Just listen. I, I'm, I, I need to be done. Listen to the, um, the whole section taken as a whole. Christian, you've been brought out of darkness and into light, so this is what you should do because you now belong to Jesus and you have nothing left to fear. You should honor everyone. You should love the brotherhood. You should have unity of mind and you should have sympathy and you should have brotherly love and you should have a tender heart and a humble mind. This is the grace-rooted community. It is the community that no longer seeks to protect itself. It no longer clamors after its own success. It is free to love and to serve in the way that they have been loved and served. One of my favorite kid movies from the last several years. Um, I can't believe I'm ending with an illustration from Kung Fu Panda, but I am. We had Karate Kid last week. We'll end with Kung Fu Panda. It's one of my, it was one of my favorite movies, kids' movies, when it came out because it's the, it's the ultimate tale of the unexpected hero. You have Poe, who is described by the narrator as a fat, clumsy panda who works in his father's noodle shop and he idolizes kung fu and he's obsessed with these kung fu superheroes who are known as the furious five but he's like the kid who simply hides in his room and dreams about it because he is terrified of ever acting on his own but through this series of events it becomes apparent that poe is now he is the long-awaited dragon warrior and it is Poe that is going to set their village free from the evil snow leopard, Tai Lung. And he does so with his signature move, which just involves his index finger and his thumb. And the reason I love it is because it is ridiculously stupid. It is absurd. It's crazy to think that a slow, overweight, clumsy panda is chosen to defeat evil and restore peace, and it is beautifully shocking. It is not at all what you would expect. It's not at all what the world would ask for. And, of course, this is exactly the language of the Bible, that our Jesus comes to us in the form of a baby and is laid in a trough in a no-name town called Nazareth, And he has come to restore and to remake all that has become so terribly broken by our rejection of him. And he starts with the people who rejected him. It is subversive. It is shockingly beautiful. It is ridiculous and it is unexpected. It is like trying to fight the depths of evil with a clumsy panza. And what is the shocking weapon of engagement that is lying underneath all the things that we have talked about so far that Christians are called to employ? And it is this simply. It is love. It is love. And if that, if you're sitting here and, and you're thinking, that sounds sappy and that sounds sentimental and that sounds simplistic, let's not forget that the heart of love is sacrifice. And the revolutionary thing about Christian love, it is that it is not just towards those who are lovable. That as Jesus taught us, it is towards those who are even unjust and even our enemies because God is love and Jesus is the embodiment of that love and Jesus moved towards us in love when we were still his enemies.
Who is there to harm you, he says, if you are zealous for what is good? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you give us wisdom. We thank you that you point us over and over again um, to what is so ridiculously beautiful and, and absurd to the world, which is your son, Jesus Christ, coming in weakness, one who holds all power and authority, taking on flesh and laying down his life for people like us. Father, may it continue to transform us. May it change the way that we interact with the world around us. May it change the way that we spend our money, the way that we relate to our neighbors, the way that we respond to our husbands and wives and our friends and our roommates and our children. Father, may we be a community that is now defined by the love of Jesus and rooted in the love of Jesus. And we ask this in his name and his name alone. Amen.